We Saw a Thing is a movie podcast about remakes and sequels. In preparation for Joker being released this weekend, Jay and Chris watched The Dark Knight, released in 2008. We saw a thing and talked about it. If you want order in Gotham, Batman must take off his mask and turn himself in. Oh, and every day he doesn't, people will die, starting tonight. I'm a man of my word. <laughs> the following conversation has been edited for brevity. I got to tell you, Chris, uh, there are things I don't love about this movie. It's a good movie. It's a great movie. There are parts of the third act that drive me crazy, and I don't know if it's Nolan. I don't care if it's Nolan. I don't love the Joker's third act almost at all, but it's still a great movie. I'm having a really hard time wrestling how I feel about this. Yeah, I can tell. And this is a movie that you and I in our personal lives have talked about a lot. This movie came out just a couple years before we met. The Dark Knight Rises came out just shortly after we met. For whatever reason, Chris Nolan between you and I is quite polarizing. (laughs) I have a lot of forgiveness for Chris Nolan flaws where you don't. But also, The Dark Knight is one of my favorite movies ever. Chris Nolan has done a couple of my favorite movies ever, so I cannot wait for you to lose your mind about some of this stuff, because I'm just going to sing its praises, and that's going to be super boring. (laughs) Look, okay, let's get it out of the way. The Joker will never be Heath Ledger's Joker. He'll never, like, I don't care how good Joaquin Phoenix is in this role, he'll never be Heath Ledger good. I don't say that because he's dead, either. Like, This is 100% the amount of time and care he put in to the character. As much as Joaquin puts into it, there are ticks. There are things. He is a chameleon in this role. This is one of the best performances I have seen in modern cinema, period. So it's hard to move past that, right? And DC's already tried with Jared Leto and Suicide Squad, and that was awful, um, objectively. I don't understand why they want to take another kick at this can, especially in a standalone movie that seems to be about like an origin story for the Joker, because if we can just get back to Heath Ledger's Joker for a second, I think that's part of the reason that he ends up being as ominous and creepy as he is, is because every time he tells his origin story, it's different. And you realize very quickly that... None of it matters. His backstory is not the thing that that makes him interesting or effective in this world. He is so unsettling. Like, I can easily see myself having nightmares of Heath Ledger's Joker just laughing. Just laughing. So I'm going to say it might be one of the best performances in the history of cinema. But with that said, there's a lot of clutter around this movie. Dive deep, man. Do it up. (laughs) Okay, I will dive deep because I just watched it. Yeah. Listen, I know I'm going to piss a lot of people off saying this, but there are a lot of things that have to go right for the Joker to do these things. And they're not without amazement, like the bullet in the wall and and matching all that up and the the cell phone and the thing. I believe that the Joker probably had, you know, six outs from prison. Whichever one worked for him, fine. It worked. I have no problem with that. But setting this all up like he's some sort of genius is crazy to then give us, I'm just a guy, I'm just a dog chasing a car. 
well, are you a criminal genius or are you the dog chasing the car? I think he's very sane in this role. I think he really wants people to think he's not, but he really is very smart. I constantly come back to the fact that every time he opens his mouth and speaks, it's some sort of misdirect. I don't feel like him saying I'm just a dog chasing cars. I don't think that that's the part of that sequence to hang your hat on. I I think that's the sequence that really shows his commitment to chaos. And it's the moment where he gives Harvey the gun. He is living in this moment where he may die. There's a 50-50 chance. And... That's part of the performance where he seems to get like really invested in that moment as a character. And I think that that shows that while he may not be a genius with plans, he's certainly invested in just being insane. So let's move away from the Joker because I think you're right about all of that. So let's get down to Batman. Uh, Sure. Yeah, let's talk about Batman. I don't think this is the strongest Christian Bale has been as Batman. I will wholeheartedly say that Batman Begins, to me, is a more complete rounded picture than this film. I agree. There is an incredible moment for Batman, but it happens at the end of the film, and he doesn't even really do anything. Commissioner Gordon gives him the Dark Knight title, and that is will forever give me chills, but I hate that he's chasing after this girl. I think it's beneath him. I think it's ridiculous. And it drives me up the wall that he's like, I will hang it up for you. Are you crazy? You will not do that. I really wonder if you would have felt differently about that if there hadn't been the acting change to bring in Maggie Gyllenhaal. It's possible. I think I would have bought into that relationship a little more if it had still been Katie Holmes. Not that, I mean, Maggie Gyllenhaal's a massive upgrade as far as acting ability, but she was a downgrade as far as chemistry with Bruce Wayne. Well, because we didn't have it initially, right? Like we didn't see that Rachel playing off and smiling at Bruce. So when we get this Maggie Gyllenhaal, at first you're kind of like, who is she? Oh, she's Rachel? She does a very different take on Rachel. She's a much more confident and outspoken version of Rachel. Katie Holmes' Rachel was uh, a little more reserved, seemed maybe a little more innocent. It was definitely a smaller role in that perspective, but Maggie Gyllenhaal brought some bombast that uh, Katie Holmes just couldn't. And so, yeah, there's a huge disconnect for me for that character. Absolutely. I don't think you're wrong at all. The other thing is his relationship with Lucius Fox. How does he put going after the Joker over losing Lucius Fox. It's almost a spit in his face in that third act. I understand you really got to get him and you really got to find him and this machine is really going to do it. But this is Lucius, man. He has kept your secret. There's an amazing scene where he's like, oh, okay, so sorry. So you think your boss is a guy who goes and pummels criminals and your idea is to extort him? I love that scene. (laughs) I love that scene too. He is always in his corner and it almost feels like I don't need you. Bruce, you do. You absolutely do. And it bugs me. 
That sequence always bugs me too. I think I had a little bit more forgiveness for it on this watch because I was paying more attention to the way Lucius seemed to appreciate the fact that Bruce had thought about, well, if you type your name in, that's the thing that kills this thing. And so I think that he was like trying to make amends for the fact that he's, yeah, we're crossing a line here, man. And I know we are, and I'm putting you in a really uncomfortable position, but you're the one who's keeping me from crossing this line consistently. You're the voice of reason in this whole thing. Yes. I also think there's too much story to jam in. I'm not saying that I'm dumb. (laughs) You're not. You're not a dumb person. But you are giving us a lot to digest in a short period of time, asking us to accept that all of this is going to happen. From the boat to Harvey flipping, Harvey's kidnapping the kid, to the Joker getting dogs for some reason and burning a bunch of money in front of a bunch of people. You are asking us for a lot of rope at this moment, which is fine, but I think it dilutes your story in a way that like a tidal wave of information hit us and your palate cleanser is I'm going to screw over Lucius to go find this guy so that I can hang him upside down and then give me the most awkward shot in the history of any movie I've ever seen when the Joker is upside down and they rotate that camera. And look, film Twitter, I hear you. I know you love this shot. I hate when they do this. And I don't know why Batman and Joker in that scene are still on equal footing, but for some reason you flip him and I just hate it. And it takes me right out of the movie. I don't know why. I mean, there's got to be somebody with me who's like, why that choice? But he's delivering more informational spew and I can't focus on it. (laughs) He's delivering like a two minute monologue and you're giving me this dolly shot that I'm like, why are you doing this? I mean, anything that takes you out of the film, that's not typically a good thing. You know what, though? If 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 those are your gripes with the movie, I think we're nitpicking at this point, right? There's not a ton wrong with this movie. It does feel like a very Chris Nolan film. He doesn't know how to write women. He doesn't know how to direct women. He doesn't understand how to direct romance. This is something we've learned from his career. That is true. There's a reason none of the Selena Kyle stuff works in, in Dark Knight Rises. I also kind of feel like he doesn't understand directing people very well at all. Like he, he has an end goal, but directing people is not necessarily in that end goal because it's been a joke for years. Batman's voice. But if I was the director on that set, I would have said, Christian, what you doing? It's jarring. He seems to be a director who really likes to just trust that his actors are going to give him a good performance. And if we look at his film history, that's been generally true, right? Where he gets pretty good performances out of his actors. There's always a bigger story going on around the character development. Then movies are never really about the character development, even when they are, right? Inception is about character development, but it gets lost in the larger conceptual nature of that storytelling. And I think it gets lost in here, too, because something you and I have talked about constantly over the years is that The Dark Knight 
isn't a Batman movie. It's not a Joker movie. This movie is about Harvey Dent. Yes. And it gets lost in the larger structure of the film. Heath Ledger's brilliance in this role really steals away from what I think the core story is about the destruction and then the rebuilding of Harvey Dent, which kind of sucks because the Harvey Dent story is amazing. It's so well told. It's so subtle. And the whole thing just works from start to finish. And every time I rewatch this movie, I love that storyline more. And the rest of it is just window dressing to get us to Harvey Dent's destruction. And I love it for that. Yeah, I mean, Aaron Eckhart has not been in a lot of things since The Dark Knight that has been anywhere near as impressive. I mean, I'm looking at you, I, Frankenstein. (laughs) The thing is, he's a great actor. He is. And, you know, he gets, I think, maybe one of the best lines in the movie, which is, you die the hero or live long enough to become the villain. Basically, what he's talking about himself, but he's also, like, he would not have known, but he's also talking about Batman in that moment to Batman. The foreshadowing in that moment is is amazing. Fantastic. Oh, man. I just keep coming back to that that sequence uh, in the police station where Joker is sitting there being interviewed by Gordon and Batman's standing there the whole time. It just gets violent and vicious. And there's a primal nature to that whole sequence that would have been really hard to capture on film. And it's disturbing from Batman's perspective and it's disturbing from the Joker's perspective. And again, I feel like the brilliance of those sequences, it just takes your eye off the ball. Having it be Harvey Dent's story and then having as great as Aaron Eckhart is in it, he's just not quite at the same level of everything else that's going on around him. It's hard to blame sections of this movie for being too good when other sections of the movie are great, but not as good. (laughs) You're getting too excited to say, like, it's hard to downgrade a great scene because other scenes are even greater. Look, there are there are some scenes in this movie that are not great, man. Just say that. No, for sure. I just mean that like the the scene between Joker and Harvey in the hospital isn't quite as brilliant. Yes. And that needed to be the brilliant scene. You know what the interesting thing about the Joker is? Is he's always trying to teach everybody something about your base humanity and how you're not an awesome person. Yeah. <laughs> like the boat thing. The boat is a great scene. The boat is a scene you would almost see in a Superman movie about hope. Right. And obviously the Joker's very angry because he thought someone was going to blow up. Right. But it's a great scene. The other amazing scene is the intro. It is maybe the best introduction to a villain ever. Yes. Because you you find out that this guy, one, has somehow managed to put this job together, but keep his anonymity. And then his total lack of regard of sharing the thieves bounty and killing all the people. And then when you get the reveal of only makes you stranger, it's unsettling. He is always unsettling. I don't think there's a scene where I'm watching him where I'm not a, where I'm okay with him ever. It's interesting because we watched it a couple of months ago 
And that villain is supernatural and is supposed to, I think, have the same kind of like really creepy ticks and unsettling nature as as Heath's Joker. And it never hits that same level. No. It, it feels so forced in it. It takes me out of those moments, whereas in Dark Knight, it draws me further into those moments. And I think that that's always a testament to the acting. And it's not to say that Bill Sarsgaard did a bad job. He didn't. He was fine. And God, like, we're doing the same thing that everyone does when they talk about this movie. We just constantly keep coming back to Heath's performance. (laughs) Because it's the thing that you remember. And it's distractingly brilliant. But then let's talk about something good, because I feel like I just ragged on a bunch. The practical effects. There is a, a scene where a truck does a flip, but not like flip like roll, flip like right over itself. And I always am blown away that they did that on a Chicago street. Like, yeah, they they flipped a truck. This movie looks amazing, in part because some of it was shot with IMAX cameras, and that always seems to enhance clarity, especially in our 4K age. That's true. I own this movie on Blu-ray, and I also own it on iTunes. And the iTunes version is, quote-unquote, 4K. But the thing that the iTunes version doesn't do that the Blu-ray does do is the aspect ratio changes when they film with IMAX cameras. And I always find I miss that when I rewatch this movie. I always go to the iTunes movie because it's easy and I just press play and it's there. And then I always regret doing that. I always wish that I'd watch the Blu-ray version instead. So did you watch the Blu-ray version? No, I'm going to after we record this, though. Okay. But I remember when this movie came out in theaters, and I was living in a small town that didn't have an IMAX theater, and I saw it in this, like, super old, very run-down theater. It was the only theater in the town, and it was so oppressive. I felt pinned in by the tone of the movie and it made it more effective. And then I flew to Vancouver and I saw it in an IMAX theater with my dad who hadn't seen it yet. And it lost something to me when it wasn't in that more confined space. It didn't feel as oppressive. I didn't get drawn into it quite the same way. It was too clean looking in IMAX. That's actually like a really interesting observation um i remember being really really unsettled by the joker i remember writing a review about it and saying the joker has the potential to give people nightmares i mean okay let's talk about somebody else like michael kane is pretty great in this movie he's always good everything that worked about batman begins still works all of it still works the casting's great the the acting's great the the dialogue is is chunky at times but you know that's a chris nolan tradition at this point there is something that i always forgive nolan for that i typically don't forgive anyone else for and it's exposition is dialogue and it's just because some of his stuff is so high concept sometimes that i feel like he can't really get around it sometimes that's fair you know without great actors it feels clunky sometimes I mean, his brother writes uh, and wrote a lot of his early stuff, and and Jonathan Nolan's just a great screenplay author. He just is. There's a reason that Westworld is so brilliant on HBO, and a large part of that is Jonathan Nolan. The guy just really knows how to tell a story. And Jonathan Nolan wrote my favorite Chris Nolan movie, and also my favorite movie of all time, uh, The Prestige. So Of all time? Yes. I don't think you've ever told me that. As you know, that is my favorite Nolan movie, and I think it's the closest thing to really understanding characters that he's written. I think so. I think it's the—and I'm just very quickly going over my Nolan history— 
it's outside of maybe insomnia, the closest we get to a traditional character study. Yeah, so I mean, this movie's okay, right? (laughs) Yeah, sure, it's fine or whatever. (laughs) Honestly, look, I have some problems with it. I know a lot of other people do not. There's just some things about it that I feel like you're really trying to cram a lot down a small tube. Having not seen it in a couple of years, it was a lot longer than I remember it being. And the interesting thing about The Dark Knight is that I don't think at any point is there really anything that's unnecessary to the story they're trying to tell. It does feel very long. There are some slow moments to it. But I feel like in the grand scheme of things, it makes it a stronger package. Okay, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I think my brain has a thing about popularity of a film affecting how I feel, Mm -hmm. which is crazy because like my favorite movie for the longest time was Jaws. You don't get much more popular than Jaws. But the fact of the matter is like The Dark Knight is number four rated best movie of all time on IMDb. I'm not doubting that it's number four. I'm just looking at it objectively and feeling like there are probably 10 to 12 movies that have been made over the course of the entirety of filmmaking history that would should or would rank higher than The Dark Knight. Right. So for me, sometimes I've, I've said a lot of nonsense about The Dark Knight <laughs> that could rile up some fanboys. I sometimes when something gets too popular that doesn't feel like it's warranted that level of popularity, I sometimes find flaws. So I'm curious if my brain has just started to find flaws. I think that 10 years or now almost, well, 11 years now, does a lot to contextualize a director's art. And I think that uh, some of the faults that maybe you're finding in The Dark Knight now Uh, have more to do with some of the things that have just become apparent that Chris Nolan isn't super great at uh, and less to do with gripes you would have had at the time the movie came out. I think that's fair because there are tropes I would not have seen in this filmmaker until four films later going, oh, wow, look at that. And I think also looking back at something that's 11 years old and has had such a crazy impact on that kind of storytelling, like superhero storytelling. Nobody else was doing realism in superhero movies in the way that Chris Nolan was. No one was balancing, you know, your superhero with with real life things in that kind of way. And it was very revolutionary at the time, whereas now we kind of look at it as this like, oh, well, whatever. It's just another gritty superhero movie. But that wasn't really a thing outside of Blade at the time. And Blade wasn't talking about politics and corruption in a city. Not only was it not talking about those things. It wasn't at any point realistic. Not at all, no. But it was the dark, gritty superhero storytelling at the time. Chris Nolan made some very strong choices in Batman Begins in the same way that Downey Jr. and Favreau made very strong choices in Iron Man because there's things that you can see that have kind of just cascaded over the last 11 years since those movies came out, uh, even longer for Batman Begins, that wouldn't happen without those kinds of strong decisions being made at the front that doesn't worked in DC's favor with movie making for the most part, but it's really worked in Marvel's favor. I would say one of the massive differences between the Dark Knight style of filmmaking compared to Marvel and the other DC films 
is they built things. Yes. The bat pod is a real thing. That helps these movies hold up. Yeah. I mean, honest to God, when that pod breaks out of the tumbler, now that was an effect. The actual thing he rides, you're like, yeah, nope, all makes sense. Like that to me is Batman. And what he's riding on is so specifically Batman. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he doesn't have another tumbler and he's got to rely on this little bat pod makes complete sense as well. Mm-hmm. The fact that it like can actually ride and and sound real. They flipped the truck, man. Like all this stuff is not CGI. <laughs> and that really holds up. Like you look at a lot of those older Marvel movies and the special effects start looking really dated and it takes you out of the the movie experience yeah. and you look back at these Chris Nolan Batman movies and there's very little CGI in them outside of just enhancing the practical effects they were doing at no point in rewatching the dark Knight, an 11 year old film. Did I get taken out of a moment by bad special effects? Not even once, not even at all. And that is something that I will, I will praise Nolan for forever in this film because you really real like even him smashing down on a truck Looks pretty damn effective. It looks great. I think it's a very iconic feeling movie. When you're watching it, everything just feels like you know it already. When he jumps in the tumbler, when he says, I'm not wearing hockey pads. Like It is a, a film that is reveled and held up high, but there are reasons for it. And most of it is that iconic nature. Mm-hmm. Even if it's adding a lot in some parts drag and... I don't like that shot at the end. <laughs> and even if we can both agree that Christian Bale needs to, whatever choice he made with the Batman voice was wrong. He had it right in Batman Begins. I don't know why he changed it. I'm curious if when Heath came on the set and he had this great character work and he was able to change things about him and Christian Bale couldn't, if he put on something different because he's like, well, I'll try something too. And then when somebody maybe said like, well, what are you doing? It's like, well, I got to compete with Heath. I wonder. There's definitely some post-production modulation to his Batman voice. It's not just performance, to my ears anyways. I don't know if that's true or not. It was still pretty bad in The Dark Knight Rises. I don't think it's as bad as this one, though. No, it was definitely a little bit toned down for Rises, that's for sure. Bane was the legibility problem in Rises. I think sometimes they think they have something better than they have when they're filming these movies. I am very glad that Marvel went in a direction that was not specifically dark though. Me too. I think all of these characters can get their own kind of movie. Ant-Man has a comedy and Captain America has a political thriller. And like, I think they all deserve to have their own tone. Yeah. I like this tone for Batman. I hate this tone for Superman. Yeah, totally. I am glad that it, it happened and people got to see these kind of movies. I'm glad that we got these Batman movies. Coming off of the the Tim Burton movies, which were so campy, and then moving into the Val Kilmer and the George Clooney years, which were campy in a really unlikable way. <laughs> we got a Batman that we could love. Right. And I, I like that. I appreciate that about these movies. Even with Rises, which just isn't as good, it's still better than, than those Joel Schumacher ones. <laughs> it's interesting because I wouldn't even consider them in the same genre almost like no the Schumacher ones have their place in Batman history as you know these were 
they were mimicking the '60s novels and that's uh, and that books and that's fine. And Batman had his weird, quirky '60s life where there was weird yeah. shit like that. I like the Dark Knight and Batman Begins movies better. I think I like it the same way I like Spider-Man because it feels like anybody could do this. Like it feels like anybody could step in the suit for Spider-Man. Anyone could step in the suit for Batman. Dark Knight got some of the same beats right that Spider-Man 2 got right. Some of the strongest sequences in Spider-Man 2 are when he stops that subway car and the people in the subway pull him into the car and lay him down gently and his mask is off and he's terrified about that and they're all like, no, man, like everything's okay. And there was a a humanness to Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2 that stopped existing after a while in those movies. And it's the same thing with Batman, right? Like, I think that they they treat the character of Bruce Wayne with humanity. He's somebody who struggles with some of these decisions. Yeah, I like that Batman makes mistakes. Yeah, I like that he's fallible, and I like that he struggles and wants to do the right thing, and and that he makes mistakes inside of that because that's so human, and it makes him a much more relatable character on the Bruce Wayne front of things, which for the most part in Batman movies, until Batman Begins, Bruce Wayne was not the thing that mattered in Batman movies. It was just the thing that Batman also was, and... Um, and was kind of just an excuse to put him in places or to have him be some comic relief as well as being dramatic. And and I think they found a really good balance of that with Christian Bale and with this trilogy of movies with Chris Nolan. I think that Christian Bale probably is the best secret identity and hero. We always talk about Spider-Man and how Peter Parker was really well played by Tobey Maguire, but Ah, some of the Spider-Man stuff was like, meh. Right. Whereas, you know, Garfield Spider-Man is witty and all that stuff. Well, Tom Holland gets it pretty damn close. Yeah, he's a good Peter Parker and a good Spider-Man. Right. I would say that Christian Bale has been the best Bruce Wayne-Batman combo. Easily. I think I like Ben Affleck better just as Bruce Wayne, but as Batman, I, I could take or leave it. He was killing people. I don't care. But the personification in the Dark Knight of the duality really works. I think it works even better in Batman Begins because I just think Batman Begins is a more, it may not have the best villain. It's got a weird twist in the middle that people don't always love. It really feels like the theme is fear and the thing you fear can either control you, control other people, or you can face that fear. Like it's got a theme and it runs that theme all the way through the film where the Dark Knight feels more like can hope fail and it takes a roundabout way to get to that end. For sure. And I think the Dark Knight is a is a good thematic follow-up to Batman Begins because Batman Begins is all about building hope in a place where there isn't any. And then the easy thematic follow-up to that and the one that makes the most sense when it's grounded in reality is, well, darkness would fight that. And the way that darkness would fight back would be to escalate to a crazy degree. Darkness can't fight light without just being darker. And I think that's why Joker becomes such an effective villain for the follow-up is because his darkness is so rooted in chaos and so rooted in unpredictability. It really does give Batman a, a completely different challenge to face because it's not your typical 
villain path, right? Like he really is fighting something that is his equal in that, you know, crazy theatrical sense. Yeah. I mean, and they really illustrate that well when Alfred is talking about the jewel thief who just burned the forest down because some people just want to see the world burn. They, you know, and, and the Joker is that personified, although he's more calculated than I think people give him credit for, especially in this film. Like, he's got a plan. He steals all that money from the mob for a reason. And then he burns it all for a reason. Like, I mean, I do love that scene where he's, you think you can take money from us? And it's like, yeah. Uh, The rewatch gave me pause because there are some direct comparisons we can make between Joker's arc in The Dark Knight and Loki's arc in the first Avengers movie, there's a very similar path to how things react, getting caught on purpose in order to create extra chaos within the fighting force against him. And there's there's definitely some parallels you can draw between these two bad guys. And I wonder if Loki would have been as effective in that movie without Dark Knight Joker to kind of draw off of. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting comparison I never would have even thought to make. Well, now I'm going to think about that for like the rest of the day. That was a very wise and smart thing to say, sir. I don't know about that, but that was sort of my takeaway from the viewing today was, wow, Loki, there's a lot of parallels there, even just in the scripting, but also a little bit in the performance. I mean, clearly Loki is less unhinged. Well, because we know more about him. If we knew more about Joker, we'd understand how he works a little more and that would be less creepy. I agree. Yeah, I think Marvel did a disservice to the character of Loki by having him kind of tiptoe this line of is he good, is he bad? And I mean, they were smart to do it to a certain extent because he's such a compelling character and he's still one of the best villains they've had in 11 years of storytelling outside of maybe Thanos. Would you say that Loki is the closest to Joker in the Marvel universe? Like... Is there another villain that would be would sort of fill the Joker shoes on the Marvel side? Um what was the what was David Tennant's character in um Kilgrave? Uh, yeah, no, I think you're right because I think he got his powers and he does whatever he wants. And there's a a viciousness to it. And, and a planning to it that I think is closest to the Joker. But I mean, now we're, we're reaching too, because like Netflix Marvel stuff doesn't count towards the MCU. I was trying to think of the comic books and actually I'm having a hard time thinking of the comic books. Yeah, I don't go as deep as you on the comic book stuff, so I'm struggling there. But like, there's not a lot of bad guys that hit that level. For straight up creepiness, maybe Hannibal Lecter? I mean, Hannibal Lecter and the Joker are pretty close as far as they do horrible things, but they also have this crazy intellect and understand human nature. That's one of the things that I'll give this film credit for. Joker understands people a lot more than you would think the first viewing because he's so different. But he really does know that nobody's going to kill him when he's at the bank because they're not going to suspect him. He knows that. He set it up that way. The only thing he really gets wrong is the boats. 
Sorry, I'm, I'm really struggling trying to think of like other movie villains that I've been like equally as creeped out by. And like the other one that's springing to mind for me right now is um, one of the Nazi commanders in Inglorious Bastards, that opening sequence where he comes in and, and he's talking to that farmer. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. Uh, Christoph Waltz. Yeah. Yes, that's right. He was so brilliant and I found his character so unsettling. But what a what a different performance, right? Like his the reason that he's so unsettling is because he's so fully committed to the ideology and so calm about his viciousness. And and there's a charisma to that that I find incredibly creepy and very unsettling. I am going to watch this movie as soon as we are done, because one, it is one of my favorite Tarantino flicks. And two, I forgot about Christoph Waltz because he flips at the end. Oh, no, no, no. I love America. I could go to America. Like He's such a weird, weasley character. Freddy Krueger. Yeah, I haven't seen any of those movies, so I can't comment. <laughs> Are you serious? Well, as we discussed in our It episode, horror is not really my thing. Uh, as we discussed in the last episode, my parents had a very strict, like, I wasn't allowed to watch certain things. And the first horror movie that I ever got to watch was Freddy's Dead. I don't know if it's the final nightmare or something. It's Freddy's Dead. And we were watching that, me and my best friend at the time, we were 13 years old and it was raining outside and we were the only ones in the house and the power went out just 30 minutes into the film. And we were so scared that we ran to the neighbors next door (laughs) because we thought in our little dumb minds, Maybe it was because we put on this horror movie. I love stories like that about childhood. Kids are dumb. <laughs> Kids are dumb. We saw a thing and talked about it. On October 10th, the guys talk about Zombie Land, released in 2009. We Saw a Thing is hosted by Jay Kennedy and Chris Shapcott, produced by Shapcott's Media. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review in Apple Podcasts.